Well, we're celebrating the life and times of Jimmy Bruin, James Bruin Jr., who was this sensation, an absolute boy wonder. And especially in the late 30s, 1936 through 39, it was just incredible. A 16-year-old, a 17-year-old, 18, 19, leading the Open, being one of the favourites for the Open Championship at St. Andrews, winning the Boys' Championship, playing in the Walker Cup, equaling and bettering some of Bob, Bobby Jones' records. Um, you know, it's worth reflecting on, it's worth uh, celebrating, it's worth reminding people of how special he was. And he was taken from us far too young, but... The memories remain from all corners, really, for people who saw him, people who caddied for him, people who knew of him. And he was spoken of in such uh, glorious terms for all of his life. And then, you know, in, in, in the last 40, 50 years, people have always talked about Bruin. So what we're trying to do is just trying to um, piece together little nuggets from different people who shared that kind of journey or have had similar journeys. And I am absolutely thrilled at this point to welcome to this particular episode uh, a man who has been celebrated recently in a fabulous book by Donald Steele. And it's the biography of Sir Michael Banalek, OBE. And the book is called Par Excellence. Beautiful title. The foreword is by Jack Nicholas, And Sir Michael Banalek, a lot of you know him as the man who introduced many champion golfers over the years as the secretary of the RNA. But what is worth remembering is that he was a five-time amateur champion and had as many victories in the English Amateur Championship and then so many Walker Cup appearances. So he was he was England's Bruin. <laughs> How are you, Sir Michael? I'm very well, thank you. Um, and uh, I heard about Jimmy Bruin before when I was growing up and I, I read about him. Yeah. I used to read a lot of golf books and Henry Cotton in particular was a great uh, admirer of Jimmy Bruin. So I read all about him and I couldn't understand, couldn't believe it that he was so good and achieved so much and yet he lost all the war years. Yeah. How good he would have been if uh, there hadn't been a war. Heaven knows. I know. And if you think about it, had he been born 20 years later, he, yourself... Uh, Joe Carr, uh, Jack Nicholas, Dean Beeman. I mean, there would have been some ding-dongs going on in the Walker Cup. Um, <laughs> but he was just that bit early. He was that bit earlier than than those kind of amazing peak years that, you know, you were you were part of. But it, it's a legend. It's I a never, legend. I never actually played with him, and I, I only saw him play a couple of times. And that was when he tried to make a comeback, and he was past, way past his best. His wrist had gone. Mm. But he was a he was a dynamic character to watch with this extraordinary swing that looks like he was cracking a whip. Yeah. Oh, do you and, remember the uh, first time you saw him? It might have just it's just before he retired. Okay. He finally finished. It must have been the nineteen fifty one or two. I think it was. Yeah, the Walker Cup in Birkdale is when he. Uh, you know, I mean, he. They always wanted him to play. Um, and this was a bit of a last hurrah, um, and the wrist gave yeah. gave away on him. Most of the time he finished just with the club on, in the left hand. He just could not, yeah. he could not repeat that magnificent action. The The right wrist was, yeah. was damaged beyond repair, really. But Henry Cotton, having written about him, I got to know Henry in later life, uh, 
and spent quite a lot of time with him. And he used to talk about him as probably one of the greatest players he's ever seen. He thought he was that good. And Henry, I mean, what kind of a character was Henry? Oh, he's a really, he's a wonderful character because not only was he a great golfer, but he was a great raconteur, uh, wonderful host. Yeah. We used to go and spend a week with him down in Panina uh-huh. and uh, play every day, Angela and I. Wow. And he used to pop the week off and we used to go and have dinner with him too. Yeah. And he used to tell filthy stories. <laughs> <laughs> he loved that at dinner table. And Toots used to get absolutely furious. Henry, you cannot tell that. You cannot tell that. <laughs> he didn't take the slightest of the notice. <laughs> but he was a funny man. He was a and remarkable he, and he character. he was interested yeah. in so many things, and apart from golf. And, uh, but he loved helping people. He yeah. was always experimenting. Even at the age of 80-something, he would be, be out there trying something new on his golf swing. He was extraordinary man. And he had this fascination. Um, like he, he clearly tried to um, work with the Walker Cup team in 1938. Like he was a he was a two time Open champion at the time, but he he yeah. he was fascinated by the youthful brigade that were coming through, and potentially some might turn professional. But it wasn't really the era, and it wasn't really the kind of way for international amateurs of the era to turn professional. They no, they were they were. There was no professional tour, of course, at that time. It was just club professionals who got together to play tournaments. And uh, uh, so it's a very different game to what we have now, yeah. professional game. But he, he liked helping people. Yeah, yeah. And he and he and Jim, Jimmy Brune and his wife, Nell, who obviously went on to be a president of the LGU, and was yeah. a was a very very uh, important figure in Irish ladies golf for many years and gave back certainly post um, her husband's death untimely as it was in 1972. She then kind of transferred her energies from obviously devotion to her husband into devotion to golf. Um, yeah, and she's still alive, Sir Michael. She is 101 at the moment. She's still she, alive. She will turn 102. Well, she was a great figure in ladies golf. Yeah. Yeah. She will, um, God willing, be 102 in late July. Oh, how wonderful. Isn't it? And Angela's shouting, who's that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so Angela's in the background, Lady Banalek. <laughs> I'm sure she came. Well, you can put Angela on in a minute if that's okay. I mean, she she has, yeah. she has yeah. a lot of energy and uh, a lot of great recollections of her era. I mean, she was she was quite the impressive player as well. She played a lot of Curtis Cups and... Um, yeah, so Curtis Cups. Wow, amazing, amazing. Yeah, you're quite the couple, aren't you? Well, she'd won a few more things, run more than I did, if she hadn't had four children. <laughs> and isn't it true... Yeah, like, I mean, while, while you were having kids, she continued to play and she was able to manage herself somehow through well, organization. I mean, she didn't play that much once she got four kids. Yeah. But she still played. Yeah. And she's still a pretty pretty nifty golfer, I'm sure, because, she, you know, you, oh, you don't still, lose it. Yeah. She's 83 now. 83. <laughs> she uh, still plays pretty well. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. Single so, figure handicap. Isn't that amazing? Isn't it? 
And golf is golf is incredible in that respect in terms of uh, well, that, that, longevity. That is the great thing about golf. You can play it from the time you can walk to the time you can't walk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. In um, a lifetime. So tell me, did you did you did you ever speak with Jimmy Bruin? Did you ever you know did you ever spend any bit of time or have a conversation uh, no, no, with him? No deep conversation. I really just met him. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, you know, as you do, you just beat that, but. And I, well, I think I probably said I wish I'd seen you play. Yeah, yeah. And I never really did see him properly. I just saw him hit the odd shot on practice on the practice ground. Yeah. And it was different, wasn't it? People say how different it was just to see that that action yeah, for starters. Yeah, it made a totally different noise when he hit the ball. Yeah. Um, you know, we're celebrating the fact that he was born 100 years ago last Friday, so May 8th was the centenary of his birth. And oh. it's, well, it's... He certainly died far too young. He did, he did, he did. But, I mean, it's very important to kind of remind people of these incredible players, men and women, who have, you know, really helped to lay the foundations for golf, certainly on this island. I mean, you've been to Ireland so many times in your in your life and times and your career. And, you know, there's a great legacy in this country, and I know you were particularly friendly with Joe Carr because you were contemporaries. And yeah, he's your tender back. Yeah. But the Irish, they, they produce these golfers who have not totally orthodox swings. Yeah. You couldn't call Jimmy totally orthodox. You couldn't call uh, uh, Joe totally orthodox or... Uh, Eamon Darcy. Darcy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We spoke to Eamon in uh, the last and episode. Yeah, they're all great players. Yeah. But you know that it's all about the, you know, the... Just shows you where it matters is actually an impact. Impact and through the ball. They get there, but they, they found a way of getting there and getting the maximum cloud speed yeah. of impact. Yeah. And, and the who, Irish are great at doing that. Yeah. Well, there's a great culture of golf here in the, and obviously there's so many great links courses, but some wonderful parkland courses as well. But there is, what there yeah. is you know, what there is is a... Um, a wonderful setup, you know. So the Golfing Union of Ireland and the Irish Ladies Golf Union, two the two oldest unions in the world, who are now about to yeah. jo- they're about to join forces. Uh, they've been around a long time but, since the eighteen nineties, so uh, they have put a lot of things in place that allow people well, that's really to be compete. Good for the game that they're joining forces. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. And the RNA has done likewise, and the LGU has been. Um, brought into the Orange now in recent times. I mean, you yep. must have been, you know, as a husband and wife pairing who have shared a lot of experiences in golf, that must have been very gratifying and maybe a relief oh, as yeah, well. Yeah, we're both very pleased about that. Yeah. And, and women members. So Lady Angela, is, is she's a member of the RNA now, isn't she? She's a member, yeah. Yeah, and... Yeah, she was one of the first. Yeah, that's great. And one of our great servants, um, so we've got, well, we've a couple, Mary McKenna, MBE, and Claire Dowling, yep. uh, two incredible yep. servants to Irish golf, they're, they're members. Claire is uh, very much involved with the RNA. Yeah, she does a lot of rules as well, doesn't she? She's um, Oh yeah, but on, on the committees as well. Yeah. I think she's deputy chairman of the general committee now. Wow, okay. Yeah, I look forward to talking to her. She's, She's a, a remarkable woman. Very bright person. Yeah, three Irish closest in a... She won three Irish amateurs in a row. She won five in total. Um, yeah. Mary McKenna won uh, eight Irish amateur titles. I mean, between the pair of them, they've uh, yeah. they've done quite a bit. 
not only at home but certainly abroad through the Curtis Cup and yeah, the Cup, yeah, yeah. Um, so it's a, it's been a, it's been an incredible journey for for both you and Lady Angela to travel the world through golf, and I suppose if you and don't mind me saying, so many interesting people, and that's what I was going to say, because countries and watching the game develop over yeah, yeah. the years in these countries. When you think about it, when I started, there were not very many countries played golf. That's Mainly right. The Commonwealth countries. And yeah, Commonwealth countries, it was played to a small extent in, uh, very, quite a small extent in Japan. It was only really uh, well after the war that it got going there. The same in, in uh, well, South Africa was already a good golfing country, but there weren't many nations that played in the first World Amateur Team Championship. Which you played in, didn't you? The Eisenhower in 58? No, no, I didn't play in 58. Oh. It was my first. Okay, yeah. At Marion. Yeah, oh, wow. Marion, right. Okay, what a what a historic that place when, that is. When Joe was betting with Jack Nicholas on how many shots, uh, so, uh, I forget how many dollars a shot <laughs> on each round. And Joe doubled up after two rounds and Jack went on to do a lower score than Hogan did when he won the Open there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Joe won them, lost quite a lot of money, but he got it all back because he said he was a much better poker player than Jack was. <laughs> yeah. It's remarkable. I think that was the year that um, Jack Nicholas, well, he set the record, which was only surpassed in 2015, if I'm not mistaken, or 2014 with uh, John Ram finally beating that record individual total. Yeah. So it stood yeah. for a long time. Stood for a long oh, time. Yeah. Did, yeah. did you, by any chance, attend the Eisenhower when it was first uh, begun in 1958 at St Andrews? Did, did I did, attend did, it? Did, did you ad- attend it? Yeah, were you there? Uh, no, no, I didn't. Because it was, um, you know, it's remarkable because Bobby Jones was the American captain, and yeah, that's when he got the freedom of uh, yeah the city of St Andrews. And did you did you meet Bob Bobby Jones much when you would go to the Masters and play and attend? Yeah, I sat next to him at the amateur dinner one year. Wow, which was one of the greatest experiences I've ever had. And what? his health was very failing. Yeah, I uh, could only drink soup through a straw. Wow, he couldn't eat anything solid. Yeah, and uh, he had a glass of whiskey which he drank through a straw. And then he had a cigarette holder with yeah. a, a support on the table that he could rest that in. Mm. And he almost chain smoked. Wow. Yeah. But well, you his know, mind, yeah. his mind is as sharp as you could ever imagine. And he loved talking about the friends he'd made and the places he'd been. And he, he had a great affection for golf over here. Of course. Course and linked off. It's remarkable, really, as well. I mean, uh, later this month will be the 90th anniversary of his first win in the Grand Slam year of 1930. So, yeah, and that was at St. Andrews in the amateur. Yeah, and between himself and OB Keeler, when he first came, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. 
A lot of people are confounded by it. Yeah. A lot of people then then they kind of fall in love with the mystique of the place and the actual strategy of the whole. Yeah, once they get to understand it. Yeah. And what was your secret around St Andrews if you don't mind me asking? Sorry? What was your secret? How 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 did you plot and plan your your rounds at at St Andrews certainly in championships and St Andrews well, Lakes? Well, it depends on the it, the great thing about St Andrews is you you can think you know how to play it. But then the wind changes and the print condition changes, and you've got a totally different course. Mm. Mm. So you're not actually playing the same course very often. Very true. They can vary it so much. Very true. Uh, I think uh, with the modern game, it's not quite the same as it was because they can now uh, hit the ball so far and then playing wedges to a lot of these holes. And these wedges and the ball stop a lot quicker than they used to. Very true. But even though they get the green quite far, it's uh, it's not it's not such a game as strategy as it used to be. Would you would you like you to, to see them? Out. Yeah, would you like to see them playing with um, older equipment and? Uh, well, I like uh, as a. I think it'd be interesting to see how the they probably would handle it okay. Yeah, but. Uh, It'd be interesting to see them. I mean, somebody like Rory would, I think he could play with anything. True. Play with the broomstick. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. I know. And uh, and just the ball. I mean, everyone goes on about the ball, but I mean, if they, if you just gave them a, a, a Balata ball, for example, and um, 19, I don't know, 85 equipment, you know, and persimmon oh, yeah. woods, wouldn't it be really good and really interesting to see how they could just master? Well, you'd get we get get back to where the distances that Jack was hitting it at that time. Yeah. Because he was the longest with uh with the Simon Woods and uh Ballada Balls. And uh what he drove I suppose about two eighty. Uh-huh. Was his sort of average drive. Now they're way up in the three hundreds, aren't they? I know. But like you would have played as a as an amateur in 1970 when he was winning uh, the Open for the second time, at, um, but this time more importantly at the home of golf. Um, yes. And he was driving the 18th and really kind of putting it up to Doug Sanders. Um, yeah. Like to see that, I mean, the way that he he could call upon himself to really pump it out there with that equipment with those yeah. with those golf balls. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. how 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 different and how 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 much better was he, given his extraordinary record in in the Open, for for example, like was it you you could actually say okay right it's between the years he was a phenomenal, um, he was a phenomenal kind of uh, strategist, and he was very practical in terms of yeah, his. Yeah, in my his mind, planning. he was probably the greatest golfer. So speak. Yeah. Uh, Tiger must be obviously very close to him. Uh-huh. I think Hogan was the best striker I've ever seen. Yeah. Uh, but Jack had it all. He had he had, he had tremendous golf brain. Mm-hmm. He knew exactly what shot to play at what time, and and he had the skill to be able to play all the different shots. Yeah. And you know you were obviously and very tremendous power. Yeah, huge power. Incredible from the ground up, just very stocky. 
and incredible yep. strength in his legs, which is where the, the, yeah. the big power comes uh, from. You put him in thick rut and uh, he didn't have the advantage that they have now with the, the clubs that can really cut through this stuff. But yeah. he used to do the old-fashioned thin-bladed clubs. Yeah, true. I mean, that shot he played in Turnbury when Tom Watson... Uh, you know, out of the bush. Oh, the the, how remarkable was that? To see that in person? Oh, I didn't see it in person. I watched it on television. <laughs> that have been the most extraordinary shot. Yeah. Amazing, amazing. But look, we're um, we're celebrating uh, Jimmy Bruin and we're marking the yeah. centenary. And as uh, someone who won the amateur think, five times, you know, and he he only won it once. Um, he he was robbed of years uh, with the he world won war. A lot more if the war hadn't come. Yeah, very true. Um. But, you know, he's arguably one of the greatest golfers ever in, in many respects. Uh, he certainly had one of the most explosive talents. And thankfully, it was. I mean, he did manage to um, deliver on that talent um, at key moments. So, you know, he got his he got his reward, but perhaps he deserved more. Yeah. But at least he did it yeah. and he, he delivered on it. And he was the boy wonder who, who, who just contributed so much to... I think really shining a light on on Irish golf and and many of more have come come in his wake. But I just want to say thanks. I mean, it's just fantastic to talk to you anytime. Um, well, it's very nice to talk to you again. Yeah, and uh, seen you for a bit. I know it's been a while, so um, I see you on television occasionally. Yeah, yeah, but you can always turn that off. You know what I mean? Or you can press mute or whatever. So <laughs> <laughs> I flick over the channel. You know. Um, uh, hopefully, we'll get to catching up on some of the old. Uh, the old television uh, tournaments. But, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. One, one we're stuck in home was this Richard Z. I know. I mean, well, that is one of the good things, I think, is is actually what this brings is a bit more time to think. It's a bit more time to kind of celebrate what's been in the past and remind yeah. ourselves of where we were and how far we've yeah. come and what yeah. needs to be done at the moment. But, um, uh, listen, thank you so much, Sir Michael. It's, it's always an honour to speak well, with you. And, um, nice to talk to you, and uh, I just wish I'd seen Jimmy Byrne play more. Yeah, and by the way, happy anniversary, because today is the anniversary of the foundation of the R&A. It's the 14th of May, as we record this interview. And uh, right. Yeah, there you go. So there you go. This is you know, the... I hadn't even realised that. <laughs> <laughs> it's the 266, 266th anniversary of the foundation of your magnificent yeah. body and which you have served with such distinction as um, not only a player and a five-time amateur champion and nine-time uh, Walker Copper and English amateur champion and everything else you won in between. And between yourself and your wife, it's been quite the success story. And uh, obviously your years as the secretary of the RNA and those wonderful uh, presentations of claret jugs to the champion golfer of the year your voice was synonymous with that for so many years and uh well golf's been a large part of our lives and we've been very lucky yeah and we've been lucky to have you so thank you very much and i i look forward to our well, next thank meeting you. thank you very much sir michael look forward to seeing you and i'm going to play Bye. a little i'm going to play a little rod stewart here because i know you're very big fans of Great. the uh, the american songbook so here's a special one for you and lady angela Somewhere 
turning into quite uh, the exploration and it is quite the adventure as well just finding out more and more about the great James Bruin Jr. Jimmy Bruin to all of Mus- Muskery Golf Club in Cork but uh, Cork Golf Club is where he learned the game and where he played all his senior cup and Barn Shield um, golf and uh, where he played most of his social golf but he was always a loyal member of Muskery who gave him that first handicap in 1935 so that he could play in the boys' championship across the water. Um, so it's fascinating just getting in touch with people who knew Bruin, who saw Bruin, who knew quite a bit about Bruin and um, understand, understood the man, if that's possible, because he was uh, he was quite the enigmatic figure. But um, we're getting closer to kind of really getting a handle on who this incredible fellow was, who became... Ireland's first golfing superstar. And I'm absolutely thrilled uh, to have this next guest on because 
Well, he's got a list of achievements. And if you were to think of 1944 as being the year that he officially began playing golf uh, as a member of Royal Port Rush, he was 10 years of age. And what a decorated career. And to think that 50 years later, he became president of the Golfing Union of Ireland. In between that, uh, he was the, the British and Irish University's champion, winner of the Boyd Quake in 1956. He was the Irish Open Amateur Champion in 1957 and won the North in 1954. And again, if I'm not mistaken, 1972, which is quite the gap. We'll have to explore that. But he was an Irish international teammate of Joe Carr's between 1954 and 1956. And, um, well, concentrated on the law. So that kind of curtailed his home international ambitions from that point onwards. But uh, he has given back to golf so great, so greatly and um, with such vigour and passion and also became a captain of his club, Royal Port Rush, uh, back in the day as well. And um, it was always a joy to meet him along the way and to befriend him. And I'm thrilled to welcome uh, Ian Bamford to this celebration of Jimmy Bruin. You're very welcome, Ian. It's great to have you on this show. Yes, well, I'm delighted, Shane, the interest you've taken in the great Jimmy Bruin. Um, as far as uh, uh, the golf clubs were concerned and uh, me starting golf at a very young age, I got to know his name very early. Um, uh, he started a long time before me. His last game for Ireland was 1950. Uh, and um, then my last game for Ireland was 1956. So uh, our paths didn't really cross on the course. But he was a legendary figure, a uh, legendary name as far as I was concerned. And uh, he came, as you say, from uh, um, a Muscarie Golf Club and Cork Golf Club. But uh, he was really a true magician on the golf course and a boy prodigy. Uh, and I might say equating... Uh, to um, uh, Rory McIlroy himself. In fact, they both won uh, close championship, Irish close championships uh, when they were teenagers. Mm-hmm. And that's an outstanding achievement. Yeah, yeah. That's not easy to do. Um, but my outstanding memory and lasting memory of uh, Jimmy Boone uh, was uh, when I was playing in the amateur championship uh, um, at Lower Port Rush in 1960. Um, and uh, this was about the second um, um, match. This was the second uh, round. And uh, our match um, uh, came to the 14th tee at Calamity Corner, a very, very a most famous hole, uh, 210 yards. That's a long hole in those days. 210 yards was a very long hole. Uh, and there was a delay. Um, Mr. Bruin uh, was on uh, on the tee waiting uh, to play, uh, and my caddy uh, came up to me and said, you know, um, uh, Ian, um, Mr. Bruin is four up on uh, Billy Steele, mm-hmm. and Billy Steele played uh, from Denham Golf Club uh, in, uh, in England and was also... Um, Oxford and Oxbridge, Oxford and Cambridge. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, I thought this is very interesting because Bruin was notorious for his length. Um, uh, and I thought Bruin might be playing uh, uh, in those days a spoon, uh, which was equating to a four wood now, mm. uh, because of a very stiff 
cross uh, wind. But lo and behold, he he took out an iron, mm. and uh, my caddy told me uh, that it was a five iron. And I said he'd never make the green with a five iron, no matter how long he is. Uh, so with his um, majestic, um, unique, uh, and powerful uh, swing, still good after so many years, um, he reached uh, the green quite comfortably and um, stood over his putt uh, for a longer time than, than I would have expected. Uh, and um, at the same time, he was manipulating uh, uh, one of his wrists. And um, I thought, this is strange. Mm. And uh, lo and behold, uh, he picked up his um, ball. And to our total astonishment, um, he walked forward to his opponent, uh, Billy Steele, and shook the hand of Billy Steele. Mm. Now, uh, what had happened was that um, uh, the tee shot uh, with his five iron uh, had aggravated an old wrist injury, which is uh, of, of um, uh, common knowledge among golfers that Jimmy was suffering from a, um, a, 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 a wrist problem. And uh, he must have seriously aggravated it because he just said to Billy, uh, look, Billy, I'm sorry, um, I'm conceding the match. Uh, I, I have to withdraw from the championship. I'm not able to uh, continue competing uh, in the amateur championship, which I very, very much regret. Mm. Um, and the result was, uh, in the records, uh, uh, Jimmy Bruin uh, withdrew um, and of course, Steele went further on. I don't know how how, how far he went. Uh, he, he was a great, he was a gentleman, mm. uh, as I later find out, um, because uh, I still continue to play a lot of championship golf, and uh, he was in fact an Irish selector, which brought him to many of the championships. Uh, he was an Irish selector in 1959, 1960, 1961, 62. And certainly, I remember seeing him um, as a selector. He wasn't playing in the side of Ireland. I competed in the final in 1961 against the great um, Michael Gearan, who was playing something similar to Jimmy Bruin. And Bruin was there and, um, uh, well, comfortably defeated. Well, he defeated me uh, in the final. But it was a pleasure to be able to see again the great Jimmy Bruin. But um, unfortunately, he, he decided, probably with his wrist problem, uh, not not to prejudice his uh, the um, well-being of his wrist any any further with championship golf. Mm. Though he did um, uh, play um, in the Irish Close uh, in 1963. It was Killarney. Um, at Killarney mm. um, against um, a very good friend of mine. Um, Ryan Hoey, mm -hmm. who said, yes, Bruin was a great, great golfer, but also a true gentleman. Mm. Well, I was fortunate to spend a bit of time with Brian Hoey, and uh, I'll try and get that little interview that I recorded with him about that famous match. And how I think Brian was more excited, actually, to just go and visit the Bruin family at their 
their tent and their caravans inside in the woodlands um, where they would normally go that for their was holidays. That very interesting aspect of, 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 of Brian's conversation with me that, that Bruin, true gentleman he was, invited Brian around for dinner, mm. I think, um, uh, with himself and his dear wife um, that, that, that evening. Uh, Joe Carr uh, beat him um, just about in the semi-final. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Joe Carr won the championship. Yeah, and I think Eric O'Brien of uh, Port Marnock and uh, late of Brookline, Massachusetts. He was in the other semi-final um, against Noel Fogarty, if I'm not mistaken. I'm just trying to think. But uh, Eric O'Brien will tell you that he came so close to realising one of his greatest dreams, which was to play Jimmy Bruin in a final of the Irish Close. Uh, it didn't come to pass. He played. He played. Yes, yeah, yes, so he no played. Way, he, he played Carr, and Carr won again. He played um, Carr, and Carr won. That's correct. It was a surprise kind of return for Bruin, and I think I think he may have been coaxed um, into just why not, Jimmy? I mean, you're down here on holidays all the time. Uh, why not give That's, it one yeah, last yeah, whirl? Yeah. You know, one last one last uh, loop. I know he gave me that impression yeah. that he might as well have a go because he was down on holiday. Yeah, and what had he got to lose? Yeah, um, exactly. Uh, but um, he proceeded into the later stages of the championship. Mm. And um, Ryan Hoy is very, very impressed with his game. Yeah. And the thing to remember as well, though, you know, when you when you kind of focus in on, say, 63, is that uh, Bruin was, he was 39. You know, he was maybe 40 max, I think, if you think about it, because he... He, he was, yes, 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 that would be correct. Yes, like, I mean, uh, he was... Yeah. swing... Now, I, I remember watching that swing quite carefully on the, on the, on, on the Calamity Corner. Despite that loopy swing, he brought the right elbow at, uh, just before impact right into the, uh, his right-hand side, yeah. uh, which is a secret <laughs> of, of, of a lot of good players, yeah. and um, struck the ball just magnificently. Mm-hmm. I, I was very impressed. Um so that's really, uh, unfortunately, I didn't get a chance to play um, uh, in an Irish team with him, mm. and that's a big regret. But I think he played for Ireland um, over several, over many years, maybe 1937 to 1950. Yeah. I think his last international appearance was 1950, um, and he won the close um, uh, a couple of times. That's right. Uh, uh, as, 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 as a, teenager, uh, as a teenager. teenager, same as Rory McIlroy. So Rory won two in a row. Jimmy won two in a row. Um, Jimmy, yes, Jimmy was beat. That. Yes, yeah. that's very interesting, actually. Yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of similarities. Although Rory would be far more orthodox in terms of his technique, uh, the fact is they are the absolute ultimate boy wonders from these shores. Now, I mean, you could make the argument that Norman Drew was a boy wonder, and Ronan Rafferty was certainly a boy wonder. Um, but there's something a little bit extra special about Rory and Jimmy. Yeah, you're quite right. You, well, you've picked out two, 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 uh, two prodig- two boy prodigies. There's no doubt about it. Norman was close to a boy prodigy mm. um, as well. Yeah, and of course Norman's still alive and uh, he's approaching 88 years of age on the uh, 25th of May. I was speaking to him today yeah. on the telephone and. Um, <laughs> Uh, he said yes, and got quite excited about that. He said, "Meeting <laughs> um, eighty-eight, and a great um, age. but his, his, his mind is still very clear. Great age. Um, but it was a nice gesture for Jimmy to hand over those 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 irons uh, that he 
um, uh, was uh, changing yeah. to 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 an up and coming uh, young golfer. A nice touch. Lovely. Yeah, we're going to explore that with Norman Drew. I can assure you. Um, I just want to say thanks for everything, um, Ian. I mean, you're just you've been an incredible servant to Irish golf, and uh, there's there's more road to cover. I know. Um, and I can't wait to see you again. It was fantastic to spend a bit of time with you at the Amateur Championship at Port Marnock last year. Uh, I mean, you just love yes, <laughs> you, right. you love it. There, we went on 17th, that's right. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and a good championship. Oh, yeah, and to have another James from Cork, you know, holding the title now, that James another, Sucre. That was a good championship. Oh, it was so, terrific, um, terrific, yeah. I also was very tickled pink in 1916 uh, to get... Um, uh, an award for uh, a prestigious uh, contributions to Irish golf, so that, uh, that that meant so much to me. Oh, good! Uh, and, that was uh, uh, thanks for asking yeah. me to speak about um, um, the legendary Jimmy Bruin. It's always a pleasure. Yeah, listen, it's been a, it's always a pleasure, kind of just uh, seeing you out there in the golf circuit, and uh, I've had the good fortune to play with you a couple of times, and uh, hopefully we'll get another game in whenever we get over to the the other side of Please, this current issue. So. This current issue, we just I need hope to. So when yeah. the um, when things get back to normal again, yeah, that would be lovely. I know, and you can get back out. That. You can get back out to Port Ballantrae. I know you're you're isolating in Belfast, and uh, you've had a decorated career in the law. And, for nine uh, weeks now. Yeah, yeah. Oh, look, we're all going through it, and uh, that's the beauty of this kind of radio style format. Now, where we can just phone up guests and have a have a good old blather about. Uh, times past and those who really did help to create the foundations from which all of the success emanates now I think and uh, Jimmy Bruin was the first he was our first superstar Ian and uh, thank you very much for joining me Right it's, a, it's been a pleasure Shane it's been a pleasure all the best good luck right now bye When you're alone and life is making you lonely you can always go Downtown, when you've got worries, all the noise and the hurry seems to help. I know. Downtown, just listen to the music of the traffic in the city. Linger on the sidewalk where the neon signs are pretty. How can you lose? The lights are much brighter there. You can't forget all your troubles. Your problems surround you There are movie shows Downtown Maybe you know Some little places to go To where they never close Downtown Just listen to the
which is a niche media production. Any and all unauthorized use or broadcast of the material contained herein will be in breach of copyright. So I spoke to Mr. or Sir Michael Banalek this morning. I've spoken to Ian Bamford and now I am talking to Norman Drew. Thank you. Well, of course, I knew Jimmy. When I knew him, I was only a boy. He did something for me, which I never forget. Yeah. He gave me a set of irons one time. A set of irons, Scots, Tommy, Tommy Armour. Yeah, amazing. Tommy Armour irons, lovely set of irons. And after I played them for a couple of days, I found that they were too heavy for me, so I had to re- I just returned them to him. Crikey. But he was a, a very nice person, you know. Well... As a, as, a, as a golfer, he was unbelievable. And did you play with him uh, at all? Did you get to the chance to really no, be up no, close with him? No, no, that's something, something that I didn't, uh, didn't achieve. Uh he didn't play in that many championships really when I was playing of course yeah of you course know. so we wouldn't have met in any competitions yeah but uh, he was known see around Little Island where he played he used to play in the winter competitions off a plus six handicap <laughs> I know it's amazing amazing well, you know plus six he was uh, it, it, people sometimes said to me, this is where Jimmy Brown had it to, and you just couldn't believe it. Mm. He, he was tremendous. Like, I mean, you know, would you, like, how do you, um, when you assess what he did and how special he was, I mean, you were very special in your day as well in those early 50s where you were, you were a bit of a boy wonder yourself, Norman, and let's be honest. You were, oh, achi- well, you were achieving a lot. I mean, like when you think <clears> that, um, you know, you won the Irish Open Amateur, you won the West, you won the East, uh, you finished runner-up in the North and in the South, you know, at uh, Royal Portrush and uh, Le Hinch. Um, you, you know, you played foursomes for Ireland with Joe, Joe Carr in 1953. You retained the Irish Amateur Open title. And, like, you were you were just out of your teens, effectively, when you were doing this. Well, the other thing I'd like to point out to people as well is that, you know, Norman Drew, you <clears> were the first Irishman to play Walker Cup, Ryder Cup and Canada Cup, which is now, of course, known as the World Cup. But you were the first Irishman to do that. So you were the, I'd say you were probably one of the first proper international amateurs to turn professional in that era. You know, it just kind of wasn't the done thing, was it, you know, in that era? which well, kind of didn't turn professional, you know. Yeah. Quite a bit of a cold, as you hear. yeah. <clears throat> Pardon me, I've got a bit of a cold. That's all right. That's all right. No, when uh, it, it, years ago, uh, you, you, you were, if you were a good amateur, you always finished up. Somebody said, "There's a job for you. There's a you can represent us in your company." And you know, yeah. So uh, there was something that uh, I I didn't give up because I didn't I didn't want to be tied down. I wanted to play golf. Yeah, except I mean it's. Perfectly understood. And that I mean, was something that was very, very difficult to do years ago. I know. I mean, it's the done thing now, you know, where people are full-time amateurs and then they turn professional with varying degrees of success or whatever. But uh, you were compelled. I mean, a, lot, were, a, lot of, a lot of players have went to university and everything. But yeah. now, years ago, as a young boy, you, you could just turn professional and that was the apprenticeship of four or five years then, you know. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. <clears throat> But listen to me, um, can, yeah. you, can you describe from your perspective as someone who, you know, 
achieved properly in golf from Ireland. And, you know, like I mean, it's, 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 it's just an insight really from, from your perspective as to what was different about Bruin and how he did what he did, because I'm sure you saw him hit the odd shot, but, um, and, and he was kind of at the end of his days, really, like when you were kind of starting to hit your stride. But, That's right. But, but you know, from, right. from a player's perspective, what is it, from your point of view, the magic? Well, uh, uh, of, uh, of turning pro or, or, or what? No, as in the striking ability of someone like Jimmy Bruin. I mean, he was like, he was just unbelievable, really, as a teenager. Um, you know, when you were only a boy, but... Uh, from 1936 to 1939, from the age of 16 to 19, he was, he was something just extraordinary. He was the next Bobby Jones. And then, you know, obviously the World War kicked in, so that kind of curtailed his progress. And he was never really going to turn pro because that wasn't the done thing and he didn't need to and they had a few quid and all the rest of it. But he had something explosive within his grasp, within his, within his hands and everything. He realised that he could play golf. Uh, So he's, Probably uh, he did what I did. He, or at least I did what he did, was doing. He spent a lot of time practice, a fair bit of time practicing. Yeah, a, a hard type of practice. Yeah, yeah. And hard practices is not sort of saying I'll hit, I'll hit, I'll hit one more, and then that'll do me. You you finished up setting out uh, like a timetable that you you practiced so many uh, maybe for an hour. Mm. Uh, and and you practice practice with different clubs. You didn't sort of just uh, <clears throat> start out the day with, with drivers. You're, you're hitting short shots first of all, and then you warmed yourself up. Yeah, you know so the, 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 yeah. the thing about Bruin, you know, and like people go on about he was lifting paving stones that really kind of killed his wrist on one occasion, and he never came back. But the bottom line is that because of that explosive power. And because of how he did it, he put his wrists under enormous pressure time after time. And it was that repetitive action more than likely. You know, when you listen to people who caddied for him, like the Higginses, like his divots were a foot long and they were deep. He was kind of striking down with such ferocious power. And they were saying it sounded like a rifle in terms of the actual hit. And then I think over time, you just can't keep doing that. I mean, something's got to give. Well, you you think so, wouldn't you? You, you you wouldn't think they could uh, keep hitting it out a heavy rough. Because he, he wasn't a, he was a, a he's a very good driver, a very long driver, but he wasn't as straight as as straight as uh, well as straight as what some players were. As I said that to me, everybody said that I was sort of like like Ronnie White, one height white, and and uh, yeah, hit it dead straight. Oh yeah, I mean, you're you're bringing back. Yeah, <laughs> obviously he's bringing back memories to you. Oh, he would just it's uh, it's hard to remember when you get a bit older. Yeah. See, guys, we uh, this week. Yeah. No, next week, next week I'll be idiot. Amazing, amazing. Yeah. And do you so, do you still? I mean, how how active are you now, Norman? Oh no, I'm not. Unfortunately, I'm not because I, I, I don't do enough. Uh, I, I don't have the opportunity. I don't have the opportunity of walking because my legs wouldn't carry me very far. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I can can't understand after walking thousands of miles or hundreds of miles. I mean, yeah. 
uh, playing golf all over the world, that I, if my legs just gave up. Uh-huh. Uh, and that's, I, I, I feel well, I get very disappointed at times because I, 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 I don't uh, I know. have the interest in going to the driving range and watching people hit shots. I, I, that wasn't interesting. I mean, uh, yeah. I'm through past that. Yeah. But you've gotten so much out of the You've given so much to the game, Norman. I mean, never forget that. I mean, you've got this incredibly special place within the hearts of so many people in this country. And uh, you shone so brightly as an amateur in particular. And then to be able to transfer it into the professional ranks so quickly and uh, to play Ryder Cup and to play Canada Cup. Um, not many people can say that, Norman. Not many people can say that. And... We appreciate you. I can. I can. I just want you to assure you of that. And ahead of your eighty eighth birthday, um, really and truly, like you know, just a, a word of thanks for for all that you've given to Irish golf. And uh, you know, well, of course, I love golf. I love golf, and uh, I always loved playing for the, the, the Irish crowd. You know, of course, we played. They say we played the World Cup, and, and really. There weren't very many people there, and, and uh, we played in the, I played in Catanzas, wasn't in it? Lutzer. Yeah, you played Walker yeah, Cup in Catanzas, and uh, in Massachusetts. Yeah, but uh, uh, it, it actually called for it years ago. It was a very lonely game because there was very little, very little support. I, I was one of the players who played it most of my golf. I played for Ireland when I played. Uh, I played in Puerto Rico. Yeah, and and uh, I played. Um, I, I always seem to represent the the Ireland yeah. away from Ireland. If you understand. Yeah, I think I, yeah, I know you were an ambassador, really. I mean, um, and probably in the era that wasn't recognised or it wasn't appreciated at the time because yeah. you were out there on your own, and there was very little press coverage and. Um, what what little press coverage there were or was there was never an Irish guy traveling, uh, kind of giving the news back to Northern mm-hmm. Ireland or Southern Ireland or giving it that kind of Irish slant. So you you were yeah. kind of fighting a battle on your own in many respects, weren't you? You were, you know, apart from the odd foray with Harry Bradshaw or uh, Christy O'Connor and uh, well, a few it, others. It was Fred 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 really. He said to me one time that he says. I always remember he said that there's a lot of people watching you, yeah, and and some a lot of people are enjoying watching you, yeah. But there's eight, but he says it'll be very lonely at times, yeah. and it was a lonely when we were traveling so much, for, especially going to America and playing in Puerto Rico, and, yeah, and I went to Canada and you know played in the continent. But we all seemed to be on our own. It wasn't that we were were with a crowd of guys, you know. I know. I know. Because pro golf is not really a, a game where, where people, a crowd of people go together unless I know. a pro am or something. Yeah. It's, it's a very lonely type of game. It's a solitary sport. It is a solitary sport. Yeah, yeah. That's what it's. Well, it's very lonely. Well, look, I mean, you, you've you got family. I mean, obviously, Gordon is, uh, where is he? Is he a pro in, is it Donegadee or where is he? Yeah, at Donegadee. He's yeah. been there for. He's been there for 25 years now. Oh, so he's carrying on the tradition, and uh, Valerie's looking after you. And uh, Well, that's, uh, I don't know what I'd do with her. Yeah. 
Get off the services and it's just fed up by talking about golf, nothing about golf and talking golf. But that's uh, part of life. That's part of life. It is. It's part of your life, and uh, you've, yeah, been, you've yeah. been part of our lives. And uh, for that generation who, who could re- truly appreciate your talent, um, you know uh, how lucky they were. Um, so, listen, I, I just really want to say thanks for everything, and I hope to see you soon when I manage to get up north. Nobody can travel much at the moment, but um, well, I look well, forward to. So. I'll take you out for a bit of lunch, and we can. Uh, Maybe maybe just record some other interviews about your life and times because it's a fascinating story, Norman, and uh, I, for one, really appreciate what you've done, but I know I speak for many. I really do. Thank you very much. Norman, take care of yourself, and uh, I will, I we'll will speak soon. You. And, and uh, ahead of next week, happy birthday. Happy 88th birthday, Norman Drew. <laughs> right. Okay, thank you very much for calling. No, it's been a pleasure. Take care, Norman. Thanks okay, so much. Bye. Thank you. and boats and planes were passing by they mean a trip to Paris or Rome to someone else but not for me the trains and the boats and planes took you away away from me we were so in love and high Not for me, the trains and the boats and planes took you away, away from me. the sea, the trains and the boats and planes will bring you back, back home to me. Shano on the radio, which is a niche media production. Any and all unauthorized use or broadcast of the material contained herein will be in breach of copyright.